Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 120, Revelation for the Churches. And this week on the podcast, I want to look at Revelation 22 verses 12 through 16 and just focus in on a short phrase that Jesus gives to us in verse 16, telling John that he has sent his angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And as we have looked at before, I sort of want to address this topic one more time as Revelation is coming to a close, and that is that the book itself was written for the churches. And I want to talk a little bit about what I believe that means, as well as what I believe, um, what I don't believe that means. And I think it will help maybe you, depending on how you've thought about Revelation in the past, it may help to clarify some things for you as it has for me. So I'm excited to get into this. Let's just jump right in. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 22, verses 12 through 16. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, as we get into this week's episode, I just want to make several observations. I don't want to take the time to repeat lots of things that I've said in previous episodes, the very first of which could be right here, what we see in verse 13. Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And this very point here, in fact, this very verse, I addressed in the episode, um, the Alpha and the Omega, way back in maybe the mid-40s in terms of this podcast, right when we began the study of Revelation, looking at the divine declaration of who God is and then how Jesus is described, and that being central for us to understand Jesus embodying the Lamb and Jesus himself having the same titles as God himself means that God is most fully revealed in the suffering uh, crucified lamb of Jesus Christ. And so here is Jesus again addressing using um, all three of the titles that are used for God at different points in the narrative. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Then uses the phrase the first and the last and then the beginning in the end. And so those are just three different ways to describe the same reality, the timeless nature of who Jesus is and why he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, Jesus then turns uh, briefly and says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And so here, um, tree of life imagery is used just like it was in Revelation 2 to offer the promise to the conquerors in Ephesus. He may grant them the right to eat from the tree of life. And so um, Jesus here is attaching that to washing their robes. And several times in Revelation, 
we have gotten glimpses of robes, um, the, the souls of the martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter 6 are each given a white robe and told to rest just a little longer until the number of their brothers um, who are to be killed in the same way that they have been has been brought to a conclusion. And then in chapter 7, we're given this beautiful vision of a great multitude that no one could number. In fact, here's how Revelation 7, uh, 13 to 17 talks about this. Actually, let me, let me read verse 9 first. It just says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So here, John combines two images for us. He combines the fact that this great multitude are clothed in white robes, but then in verse 14, he says something strange. He says that these people have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, here in Revelation 22, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who wash their robes. Well, John has told us here from chapter 7 that those who wash their robes do so by making them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, again, as I've mentioned before, this is a great reason why you and I should not take this book literally because of images like this. And you and I know, literally speaking, blood stains things. It does not make them white. In fact, you would need to thoroughly wash a garment yourself with soap and water or bleach or something else that we would know of in order to make it white. But the image here is that we are being cleansed and made new from our own sins because of the shed blood of Jesus. And so in Revelation 12, for instance, believers are described as having conquered Satan, conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their own lives even unto death. And so the accuser of our brothers, the dragon, Satan, the devil, the accuser of the whole world, he has been thrown down, John tells us. Well, the accuser is the one who stands before you, before anyone else, before God, and accuses you, points out your sins, points out your weaknesses, points out your deficiencies, points out your inadequacies, and John is telling us that the faithful followers of Jesus conquer by the blood of the lamb in the face of accusations like that. And what he means is, as he goes on to say in Revelation 12 verse 11, they conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And what John means for us to understand here is that those who choose to be clothed in Christ, not clothed in themselves, 
when they receive accusation or exposure of vulnerability, exposure of weakness, exposure of inadequacy, exposure of sin, exposure of selfishness, exposure of idolatry, they do not defend themselves because we are not seeking to cover ourselves by our own goodness, right? The Bible calls that self-righteousness. Instead, what we do is we say, if I am clean and I have, have, have received a white robe and it has been made white due to my washing it in the blood of the lamb, then I continually go back to the blood of the lamb. And this is the, the way I'm able to conquer the enemy is when he accuses me of something, I say, you're right. You're right. And if it were not for the blood of Jesus to cleanse me and to purify me from all sin and all unrighteousness, I would be worthy to face the consequences of your accusation. However, the one who laid down his life for me has made me clean. And as I continue to wash my robes in the blood of the lamb and continue to make them white and continue to confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the posture of a Christian. The posture of a Christian is one who has received a robe to wear, but who repeatedly and continually has it washed in the blood of the lamb, both as a representation of what Jesus has done for them, but also in defense of any accusation that may or may not come from the enemy. It saddens me to know that the posture of many Christians is self-deflection, that when sin or hypocrisy or idolatry is brought to Christians or to churches or to the whole Christian movement at certain times throughout history, there is a lot of defending. Well, we are not here to defend ourselves, nor are we here to imagine that we are above critique. Washing one's robes, and Jesus is offering a blessing to those who do, he says we'll have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So he's opening up access, and that's exactly what he's describing once again in Revelation for us. The access in his presence is made available when we demonstrate by our lives and by our openness that we actually need him. And this again is, is where I tend to think that the church, predominantly in, in America anyway, has very rapidly been adopting the, the posture of the Laodicean church, this Laodiceans who do not see themselves as actually in need of continual cleansing. They tend to view themselves as already clean. And Jesus, of course, rebukes them, tells them that they are unable to see and that they need to have salve from him in order to do so. And they need to have him be able to wash their garments so that they might actually be clean. And so this, again, I believe is the posture that we're supposed to adopt. In verse 15, Jesus goes on and he describes, um, again, he just said, you know, you're going to have the right to the tree of life, which is in this heavenly city, right? Right in the center. And you're going to enter this city by the gates. And so we, we talked about how the gates are always open. And we talked about how the God's posture toward the world is, a, is one of continual invitation. But then Jesus does turn and he does describe 
what is outside of this city. So if, if these people who wash their robes and have this certain posture are welcomed into the city to partake of the tree of life, which John tells us the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations, that could even include us, of course, um, and that we will enter the city by the gates, then outside this city are, are the following. And Jesus says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, there's a sevenfold description here. I don't know if you heard it all, but it, you know, if you count, right, dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves falsehood and everyone who practices falsehood, right? There are seven descriptors here. And I, and I think you, we see this in several places in the Bible. And I've pointed out some of these. Let me just remind you of one from the Old Testament and one from the New, actually from Revelation itself. But in Isaiah chapter 11, the Spirit of the Lord is given a sevenfold description. And we read, in the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Um, and that is a sevenfold way of referring to the complete um, picture that is God, that is, that is his very presence. In Revelation chapter 6, we get another one of these descriptions, a sevenfold description of the kinds of people who are seeking shelter from the wrath of the Lamb. And here's how Revelation 6 describes it. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Now that sevenfold description, if you caught it again, right? Kings of the earth, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, slave, free. Okay, it is another one of these complete or holistic descriptions of the whole gamut, the kinds of people that are present. And we talked for a while when we were in chapters six and seven about the fact that they are running away from the presence of the lamb. They see the presence and the coming of the lamb as something scary. And they say, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Well, fascinatingly enough, we address that in chapter 7. Those who can stand are those who are, in fact, clothed with these white robes. Um, John addresses them. Uh, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of, of, of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God. So um, he sees this great multitude standing. And that's not coincidental. That's very intentional. There's a direct contrast here then between those who are afraid of the presence of the Lamb for what it will do to undermine the kinds of lives, lives that they wish to, to live versus those who have given up their own lives in order to follow the Lamb. And so that's the same picture. And I, I just want to point out for one last time that in Revelation, they describe where these people are. And John, I'm sorry, Jesus here tells us that they are outside the city, which is simply Revelation's way of designating those um, whose way of life or way of being is incompatible 
with life in God's kingdom. You've got, they call them the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. If the Lord Jesus is going to set up a kingdom and it is going to be a place of true righteousness and justice, then sexual immorality, sorcery, murder, idolatry, and loving and practicing falsehood cannot possibly have a place in that city. And so again, those who wish to live that life are designated to, to spend their time outside the city. And Revelation doesn't give us a robust view of exactly how that works or what that looks like. But I did find it necessary to at least mention something about that because I know there's a lot of questions about who, who, who's going to be there and why are they going to be there. And I, and I want us to see the way John is laying this out before us, not to give a hard and fast rule, but to recognize some of the nature of the characteristics of those who will not find a place, will not find a home, and would not even like being in this eternal city because of what it represents. Now, as I shared in the introduction, in this last verse of our section, Jesus says that this testimony, which he has delivered, is for the churches. And I want to point out to you, as we're looking um, at this last section, is that this revelation is all of the book. Um, as I shared, I think somewhere way back in chapter 2 of Revelation, um, this is not um, each of the churches receives a letter, right? It, it, it isn't seven letters being circulated to these churches. Rather, the book of Revelation, all of it, chapters 1 through 22, is the letter that is being circulated to all seven churches. And so again, just to remind you what that means is that the Christians in Ephesus get to hear what Jesus says through his spirit, not only to them, but also to the Christians in Laodicea or in Philadelphia or in Smyrna. And the Christians in Sardis get to hear what Jesus says to the Christians in Ephesus or in Pergamum. And the reason for this is pretty simple. Um, number one, some churches were struggling with idolatry and needed to repent. Other churches were struggling with um, remaining faithful. They were not committing idolatry, and as a result, their lives were made incredibly difficult. And to the churches that were committing idolatry, Jesus calls them to repent. And to the churches struggling with maintaining faithful witness, he calls them to endure. And that, in fact, those two themes are constantly given to us throughout the book of Revelation. The point being, if you are a church and you're beginning to um, slide away from the truth and you listen to the words of rebuke and you shift in your thinking, well, that's fantastic. Now you may be able to receive words of encouragement given to one of the other churches that tended to be a bit more faithful. And now you're able to reread the entire letter, the book of Revelation, right? The one letter from a different angle, seeing how would these same realities be described for you if you were now one of the churches being a bit more faithful. And so I, I won't go into all that more detail. Just know that the testimony Jesus gives for the churches is the entire book of Revelation. It is not just chapters two and three where he addresses explicitly to these individual churches. And I want to point out one more time for us to remember, because this is important, Revelation is not written to Babylon 
or to Rome or to the world. It is written to the church and for the church. And contrary to the popular teaching that I was exposed to growing up, it's not for the church in the sense that it provides Christians with all the gory details regarding what is going to happen to the world once all the Christians are gone. Okay, I was taught that in a church as a young person. What this means is not that Jesus does not mean by his testimony being for the churches that this is now for Christians to imagine what is going to take place when they are no longer here. Rather, Jesus's testimony, right? Testifying to the truth, being the faithful witness is intended to shape the present lives of his followers, not their fanciful speculations regarding the future lives of other people. Let me repeat myself. Jesus's testimony is intended to shape the present lives of his followers, not their fanciful speculations regarding the future lives of other people. To my mind, this is probably the most unfortunate aspect of interpreting Revelation in the futuristic only way that it's often interpreted. It claims to be honoring to Jesus while simultaneously neglecting the radical present-day demands of discipleship that Jesus calls his church to. And so in reality, it actually dishonors Jesus, not honors him. It allows the lives of Christians to remain unaffected and unchanged. Or a different way to say it, it doesn't allow Jesus to be Jesus in the lives of his followers. <laughs> Rather, this future-oriented only interpretation allows Christians to remain comfortably as they are, and despite their claims to uphold the authority of the Bible in their lives and ministries, in reality, they actually render the Bible completely powerless. They relegate its transformational teachings to some future point where they will no longer be around. Now, after our extensive study of Revelation, we now know what these Christians are, are neglecting is Jesus' self-sacrificial, lamb-like, power-under, kingdom-of-the-cross kind of living. With the future-oriented view of Revelation that I grew up hearing about, a Christian could be a standoffish, self-centered, beast-like, power-over-kingdom-of-the-sword kind of person and see absolutely nothing wrong with that. After all, they've placed their faith in Jesus and now they consider themselves to be good. Now, I know that that's an oversimplification and somewhat of a caricature, but the point still holds. When you relegate a book like Revelation to a future orientation only, you cut the legs out from under its transformative power and allow the worldly elements it addresses to continue right on unchecked in your life, even as a Christian. Now, some branches of evangelical Christianity are notorious for seeing it as their job to tell others about Jesus and what Jesus taught without actually doing any of the things Jesus actually taught. But that's a tragic irony. Jesus never told his followers to go tell other people what he said. 
Let me repeat myself because some of you might think I'm blowing smoke here. Jesus never told his followers to go tell other people what he said. He told his followers to obey his teachings themselves by following him. What he said to his followers was that the Holy Spirit would remind them of all the things that he said and did so that their lives would be transformed. But how much easier is it for Christians today to be outspoken regarding human sexuality, for example, to be outspoken about human sexuality in the wider culture without being as equally concerned for matters pertaining to sexual abuse in the church or porn use among members or marriages in the church where the husband expects sexually more from his wife than he's willing to give to her or the way many women in our churches feel objectified and lusted after by men in the church more than they do so by those outside the church. Does Jesus call his followers to tell the wider culture what they are doing wrong when it comes to sexuality? Or does Jesus call his followers to come to him with their own sexual brokenness and ask to be freed from their own destructive behaviors? Answer, it's the latter. It's the second option. But I'd be willing to bet That if I invited people to come have a Bible study where I was going to talk about what the Bible says about, let's say, homosexuality, that seems to be a hot button topic right now. Do I have certain views that I perceive to be true about what the Bible teaches regarding homosexuality? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. But I do not approach that topic first and foremost, looking at what the Bible says and then looking at other people because it, it's, it's going to be other people if I'm talking about homosexuality because I happen to be heterosexual. So what's interesting and somewhat discouraging, I guess, about that topic is that I in no way put myself in the category that I, am hap- that I approach the Bible looking to address. So when I approach a topic like that, I don't start with a homosexual um, individual or someone who identifies in a different way, I start first with my own broken sexuality. Because Jesus hasn't invited me, he hasn't even asked me to be his spokesperson to the rest of the world regarding what he does or doesn't think about those behaviors. He has called me to follow him. He has called our church to be faithful to him. And so I I don't mean to pick on people, but I would like to toss out a hypothetical, right? How many people would I get in my church if I said, we're going to do a study on what the Bible teaches about homosexuality in the Bible? And if I did another study and I said, we're going to do a study on the sexual brokenness and the sexual deviance and the sexual abuse that is happening in our own church and what we ought to do about it in terms of repentance, um, asking for forgiveness confession, accountability, openness, vulnerability, and transformation. Would I get as many people to sign up for the second class where we are going to look at our own sexuality, our own sexual practices, our own beliefs, our own struggles, our own captivity, or 
would I get more people to come to a different class where we're also going to address sexuality from the Bible, but it just so happens that the majority of people in our churches don't personally struggle with that. That would be one example of a way to get an indication of whether or not the people in our churches are more concerned with those outside the church or whether they're more concerned with those inside. And I'm telling you, from the New Testament, from the Gospels, and here from Revelation, Jesus is interested in his own followers and in his own followers being open and honest and transparent with him. Remember, once again, we need the blood of Jesus, do we not? So if I come to a group and I get transparent and I get vulnerable, I have lots and lots and lots of room for Jesus's blood to be um, washed over me and for me to find cleansing and healing from him in those spaces. You see, the Christian community is called by Jesus to present themselves before him to be remade into citizens fit for his kingdom. He's never called us to be his spokespeople to the rest of the world, telling them of their need to repent or be sent to hell. And to an incredibly large extent, the church has gotten this backwards. So Jesus says he has given this testimony for the churches. He's explaining the beast-like attitudes and the opposition that they will one day meet when they come face to face with the lamb. He's doing that for the churches. Why? Because beast-like ideologies have captured the hearts of many members in his churches. So what's he calling them to? Repent. Why? Because he doesn't want them to face the same kind of fate that Rome slash Babylon is undoubtedly going to face. If you're, if you're into perseverance, he wants you to understand his own life of perseverance resulted in his vindication slash resurrection. And the same promise awaits the faithful followers of Jesus who are faithful to him even unto death. This is a testimony for the churches. It's for their faithfulness. It's for their um, longevity. It's for their ability to represent Jesus well in the world. And it's a tragedy that we have given that up in the name of believing it's our job to go tell everybody else what they're supposed to do. That's not what Jesus has called the church to be or the church to do. And, and here's a great example. This is one that I personally um, find a lot of comfort in, but not before uh, receiving quite a bit of rebuke. And yet I, it's, it's Holy Spirit conviction kind of rebuke. So this is not, this is not meant to to slash us or whatever, but let, let me read you the first half of Psalm 51. Um, if, if any of you are aware of this, Psalm 51 was written by David after Nathan, the prophet, was sent by God to confront David regarding his sin with adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder and cover-up scheme of her husband Uriah. David um, talks about in Psalm 32, his bones wasting away. He just sort of carried this guilt and he knew he had done wrong. And when he comes um, under conviction through Nathan and through the spirit, he pens these words. And just listen to what David says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now I wrote these words out or um, copied and pasted them onto a Word document just so that I could look and do some underlining myself. And I counted... I believe 24, maybe 25, now that I'm looking back through my notes, I think I missed one, um, pronouns that, that David uses. Let me just read them for you quickly. Me, my, me, my, me, my, 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 me, I, I, me, 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 I, me, my, my, me, 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 me. Now, that's a lot of pronouns. Okay, again, 24, maybe there's a 25th, another me that I believe I might have missed um, in verse 6. But let me tell you what David is saying in this prayer. Through the first 12 verses, as we've identified them in verses, David didn't do this, but we do, and it's helpful for us so that I can talk to you and you can look these up in your own Bible and know where I'm coming from. This is what David is saying. I am the one in need of mercy. I am the one with transgressions. I am the one with iniquity. I am the one dirty from sin. I am the one who has sinned. I am the one conceived in sin. I am the one in need of cleansing. I am the one God should hide his face from. I am the one who needs his iniquities blotted out. I am the one in need of a clean heart. I am the one in need of a renewed spirit. I am the one God needs to uphold. If you take all of those ideas, which I more or less just extrapolated from the first 12 verses, you come to verse 13. And David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You know, I, I don't know this for sure. And again, I'm not trying to caricature anyone, but it has been my experience that many, many people in the evangelical church like to skip over Psalm 51, 1 through 12, they don't like to focus in on the sort of posture David embodies before the Lord regarding his own sin, but love to take up the, the, the charge of verse 13 where David says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. But David throws in a massive then. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. So let's walk through this with David. 
If David sees himself as the one in need of mercy, as the one with transgressions, as the one with iniquity, as the one dirty from sin, as the one who has sinned, as the one conceived in sin, as the one in need of cleansing, as the one God should hide his face from, as the one who needs his iniquities blotted out, as the one in need of a clean heart, as the one in need of a renewed spirit, and as the one God needs to uphold, what if we applied the same logic to transgressors and sinners? What if we asked God to treat them as we are asking him to treat us? Do you think our posture toward the wider culture would change? Do you think this posture would mitigate against Christians being continually labeled hypocrites? You know, I can't help but imagine or I can't help but think that the answer is yes. I'm afraid that the reason why Christians are often labeled hypocrites is because they see themselves as self-appointed. Well, they almost see themselves as God-appointed, right? Spokespeople about righteousness. But people who are being condemned or who feel judged or who do not sense compassion and grace coming from those pointing out their sins, when they feel that way, they naturally get defensive. And so what do they do? They push back. And they point back. But if our churches and the Christians who fill them up see it as their primary role to point out what everybody else is doing wrong, then Christians deserve that kind of pushback. The accusation of you're a hypocrite actually holds true. Now, here again, we could back up to Revelation 12, right? And when we receive that accusation, we might need to know what we could do with it. Many Christians simply defend. We're not hypocrites. Everybody's a hypocrite. Why are you talking to me like that? No, what we probably should do is say, you know what? You're right. We are hypocrites. Nobody does this perfectly. And then to come to Jesus for cleansing, but not just so that we can get out from underneath the label of hypocrite. No, that's a, that's a self-centered thing to do, right? Go, go to Jesus, get, get yourself patted back up and it'll fill back up a little bit so that you don't have to carry around that label. Well, if the label is true, then we need to own it because David goes through a lot of pronouns here. Me, my, 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 me, 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 I, I, me, 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 me. He sees the weight of sin. He sees the ugliness, the dirtiness, the filthiness of sin. He sees his own brokenness. He sees his own weakness. He's asking the Lord to restore to him the joy of his salvation and for God to uphold him with a willing spirit. Why? Because David knows where his spirit will go if the Lord doesn't help him uphold it. Now, that's a man who has come to a place of real brokenness. And David then says, then when you have restored to me the joy of my salvation, when you have upheld me with a willing spirit, when you have not cast me from your presence, when you have allowed me to maintain um, um, a grasp of your Holy Spirit and his presence with me, when you've given me a clean heart and renewed a right spirit within me, when you've blotted out my iniquities, when you hid your face from my sins, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And what will David's posture toward those transgressors be? It will be the posture of someone who knows he's desperately in need of mercy, which is the way verse one begins. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That 
should be the posture of the church toward the wider world. That should be the posture. We can share with others that we do not believe the ways that they are living are going to lead to their own flourishing. But the way we do that is so important. And I would argue that the church would be very well served for the next 10 to 20 years to not spend any of their time doing that. The church has some serious struggles going on right now. We have a serious identity crisis in the church. We have serious idolatries that are running rampant and unchecked in the Christian church. And Jesus has a word for his people. It's the book of Revelation. His testimony is for the churches. His calling by his spirit is for the churches. His rebuke is for the churches. His exhortation is for the churches. His word of hope is for the churches. His word of coming judgment is for the churches. We need to understand that Jesus has come for the churches. He's speaking to us. He wants us to follow him. But that will require us to be the vulnerable, transparent, open, broken people that he wants us to be. Because only there, only in David's position here, is real life able to be generated. And I actually think it's in large part due to Psalm 51 that David at other portions of the Old Testament can be called a man after God's own heart. There's a lot of people who like to, well, who, what's God like? How is God? You know, I want to be like God. I want to be right all the time and I want to be in control. And I, No, that's not what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Someone who sees God and loves God and wants to follow God when they are face to face with their own brokenness and own inadequacies and own waywardness and own sinfulness and own stubbornness and own selfishness, own up, see it as the dirty, filthy, broken, um, you know, iniquity filled thing that it is and come to him to be cleansed and healed and delivered from it. So that's where I think the church should be. That's where I want the church to be. I want the church to be more concerned with holiness and righteousness within its own, you know, community than we are with those outside the community. And I am very discouraged, if I can be honest with you, that that is not generally the posture of churches. Generally, the posture of churches is to condemn, to criticize, and to blame other people outside their walls, um, organizations, um, systems that they feel are the enemy and continue to remain blind to what Jesus is actually calling his own followers to do. And so that's really all I have for this week. Um, I don't mean to leave it on a downer. I don't see it as a downer. Um, Jesus will bring new life to his people in far greater measure than we could ever ever calculate on our own, but it requires the vulnerability and the admission that he's got a lot of things to expose in us that he wants to root out. And that's not a threat. It's, um, it's a gift. And yet I know sometimes in, in our sinful state, we see it as a threat. 
Um, but that's just the nature of things. It, knowing who Jesus is and what he wants to deliver us from does not have to be threatening. Um, it can be quite liberating. And this is why I think confession is such a vital part of the church and why we need to bring it back in full um, in full measure. Again, not to guilt people or to shame them. That is the opposite, but rather to recognize that people who keep things that they've done or that have been done to them hidden away in the dark is where lies and deception and falsehood and, and, and all the rest can, can live and thrive and wreak havoc in the lives of real people. And that's what Jesus wants us to, to be freed from. And so he sent this testimony for us to know what does it look like to live faithfully in a world um, that doesn't want to follow him. And what does it mean to look faithfully, live faithfully sometimes in churches who don't actually want to follow the ways of Jesus, but would rather just um, imagine that we already are doing that and then move on to um, critiquing others that we feel the need to listen to us. Um, that's really not what Jesus has called us to do. We are not Lord. He is Lord. And there is more than enough of our time and energy that could be spent um, looking inward and owning up to things where we have fallen far short. Not to feel guilty about, but rather to recognize here is yet another place where my robe is stained and I need Jesus to wash it and make it white with his blood. That's a hopeful message, not a discouraging one. So thank you so much for tuning in. We may have just a couple more episodes as we bring Revelation to a close. I do have one more by the book episode for you. And then just to prepare you all, I am probably going to take a little bit of a break from the podcast. It's been going for a little over two and a half years now, and I have not taken much of a break. And um, I just really sense that it would be good for, for me, for my health, for my family, if I would just um, be able to take a break. So I've got a couple more episodes coming your way, um, and then I'll, I'll talk with you on the last episode or so just to kind of fill you in on where I am and what I think Jesus is calling me to and um, how that might fit uh, with the podcast. So thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great week. Thank you.